and open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, because sometimes it almost seems like students will go on a, a rampage, uh, sometimes with their parents, especially when their parents are believing Reformed truth, that the parents believe that God chooses those who will be saved. And some students who are indoctrinated with the world's faulty fairness philosophy will say or ask, well, how come God didn't choose everybody? And if it depends on God and He alone can save, then why doesn't He choose everyone? And sometimes you kind of almost want to say, well, are you smarter and wiser and more powerful than God? But understand, they're saying, it sounds like me that God is being unjust. How do you answer that? Well, there are several things that you can say from God's Word, and that is that why would God save anyone? I mean, no one deserves salvation. Can I hear an amen to that? No one does. No one's deserving. I'm the top of that list, and God is not being unfair. He's being merciful to some because He is a loving, gracious, merciful God. All of us are headed to hell, according to the Scripture, by our very nature. Uh, We are fallen in Adam. And by our choices, our sinful choices, it's only grace that causes God to actually choose some out of the horde of humanity who are all in disobedience to Him and living that way in defiance. God does save, but the Bible teaches that each person in this room is actually responsible to believe. You are responsible to believe that Christ died for your sin, that He rose from the dead, and that God will hold you responsible for your response to Him that you would respond in faith. In fact, God actually makes it very clear that He's revealed Himself to this world in a very real way uh, to all humanity through your conscience internally, through creation externally, and the Holy Spirit has told us that He is convicting the world. He's working even in the hearts of unbelievers about sin. They know they're in defiance. Righteousness, they know needed to be right and perfect before God and that judgment is coming. They know that. In fact, the call to salvation is given throughout the Word of God. You see it everywhere. Amazingly, on the heels of Romans 9, are you ready? Romans chapter 9, election, where God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. The very next chapter, before it even moves on, he says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Now, without any apology, God makes those statements very clear. In fact, the Bible even tells us in Luke 13, 24, it calls sinners to press into the kingdom, to go for it by denying yourself and losing your life. So churches and parents need to be those who would teach the truth, stand on the truth, and speak the truth. But something else is necessary that really gives a foundation for what we're going to talk about today, and that is this. Along with knowing the truth, and your children, and all of us to some degree, need to be in an environment where they see the truth lived out. They see it lived out. Uh, They not only need to hear about God's design for men and women, they need to see God's design for men and women lived out in the home and in the church. In fact, They need to see it applied to their lives, the truth, so that they'll not only be hearers of the word, but they'll also be what? Doers of the word. 
They need to see truth lived out. Sometimes doctrine is difficult, and we struggle with it, and it's hard for us to comprehend or hard for us to come under its authority, and God's Word is definitely contrary to what the world demonstrates and what the enemy himself teaches. So when students and others or you know, young Christians battle with doctrine, struggle with their faith, it's important and it's powerful to them see the truth lived in our midst. That Christ is manifested through our lives in example. They, it's crucial they get to see God transforming people around us and believers that they're no longer living Again, the way of the world and the way of sin, but they're living towards righteousness and trying to please Christ. They see a change, not because people have to or trying to earn it, but because Christ has transformed them. In fact, they need to be able to say, not only have I heard the truth, but I've seen the truth. I've seen it lived out. Now, it's not required, but it's helpful, and you would all affirm that you see all these exhortations in the New Testament for us to be, have examples to follow, correct? And so I'm not promoting experience here. I'm promoting example. And we need to see the dramatic, miraculous things that God does in salvation, in testimonies, in baptisms, when people are publicly confessing their faith in Christ, or even through spiritual gifts that are exercised in service and God's providence and wisdom from older saints. All of that is powerful in the life of believers, specifically your children. Parents, are you buying up the opportunities? Do you bring your children to hear the testimonies at a baptism service? Where you see they used to be going this direction, and now they're pursuing Christ because God has transformed their heart. Or maybe are they seeing the power of the Spirit expressed in ministry through your giftedness, where they see that you're supernaturally gifted to put Christ on display in a particular way? Or do you keep a record of answered prayers, specifically, especially when you're going through a deep and dark trial? It's very important to keep a record of how God is answering prayers in very specific ways. Do you see and recall the providence of God? Actually, Four times today already I've seen the providence of God in a miraculous way today. I don't even have time to tell you about it. Just to go, wow, didn't arrange that. And wow, God is in control, right? There are ways he manifests himself. And the point is this. If you're convenient about your faith, you're going to miss the Spirit's work. If you're distant from the body of Christ, sometimes you and your children will miss Christ and what he's trying to do. And that's what the Apostle Paul is now going to be teaching the Galatians. As we've walked through this book, you know there are Judaizers teaching a false doctrine, and he's saying, no, don't add anything to your faith. It's all by grace through faith in Christ alone. But now he's going to talk about even the Christian life and the tensions that Christians have with one another and how that makes a difference as we're dependent upon the Spirit of God. So I want you to write down, even before we begin, are you ready? Write down these words. You can't, he can. You can't, he can. Very simple, very basic, but I want you to walk away with a real sense that you can't pull this off, but God can. God wants you to see Christ as alive, and so alive that now as you're living by the Spirit, you're not going to be fulfilling the desires of your own flesh. You're not going to be sinning in the way that you used to as a non-Christian. This new state of being forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future, frees you, does it not? Listen, are you, every time you sin, having to earn your salvation all over again, yes or no? 
No. Now you're freed from that, and God has delivered you from that, and so therefore, He's put you in a place where now you're not free to sin, but now you're free to obey God that you've never been before, and to see Christ as alive. And that's what He's going to challenge you in, in this particular passage in chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. And really, it's broken up into two parts. The first three verses and the second three verses. The first three verses are going to give you command, 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 command. And you're going to go, man, I got a lot to do. And then the second three verses, you know what he's going to say? You can't do it. You can't do those commands. You need to be trusting in the Spirit of God to work through you in order to accomplish these commands. So it's a wonderful balance between the exhortations of God and the commands of God and now the indicatives of how he's then provided the way for you to be able to do what he's asking you to do. Are you getting it? So I want you to read aloud with me point number one, which is pursue God's purposes for freedom and read aloud with me verses 13, 14, and 15. Are ready? Let's read that from your outline together because I know you love reading out loud. Here we go, everyone. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Now the next major point is thou to say to rely on God's Spirit in order to accomplish all that, to live free. So read aloud with me now, verses 16, 17, and 18. Let's read that together. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you're new with us, understand we're a church that's committed to just drawing out what the Bible has to say. Not making it say what we want it to say, but expositing it, which means to draw out the truth exactly what he intended so we can hear what God meant by what God said and not what we think it means, okay? So that's what we're going to try to do. But I want to ask you, do you remember when you were a slave to sin? Now, now you don't raise your hand, but this is before you came to Christ. Do you remember when you were under slavery to sin? Some of you may remember when you were actually <laughs> enslaved to religion, where you were trying to earn your salvation every day. Remember that? Jesus Christ wants to free you from that. You no longer have to then every day, every time you mess up, every time you sin, try to earn your salvation back. You know, do penance, go to a booth, offer something to God. You don't have to do any of that. Because once you're saved and genuinely converted by Christ, past, present, and future sins have been completely 100% forgiven. Can I hear an amen to that? And you're saved by grace, which is a gift from God, through faith where you rely, put your life in his hands, in his work on the cross where he died and bore all the punishment that God poured out for your sin upon Jesus Christ. He then, when your faith is in him, covers you with his righteousness. Not only that, but he transforms you and he indwells you by his Holy Spirit to empower you to live the Christian life. So it's not about you, but it's about God working through you. Are you getting it? So point number one in your outline, pursue God's purposes for true freedom. Pursue His purposes. Now, everybody wants to be free, right? In America, we have a free country. And somebody in the second hour went, ha, like that. Um, but a free market economy, free enterprise, 
People want to have a free hand, a free reign, and a free lunch. When I go to Costco, I want free samples. That's right. But people get in trouble, and write this down, when they pursue freedom without responsibility. And that's what our society wants now. That's what most of your friends want now. They want freedom without responsibility. In fact, some Christians even get this wrong. They think that now that I'm saved by grace through faith, that I'm just free to sin as much as I want, which is totally contrary to the indwelling Holy Spirit and the new nature that He's given you. Totally contrary to the way He's made you if you're truly born again. So understand, the Bible strongly teaches that if you think, well, I can just sin with freedom and no big deal, that's not what living under grace is all about. You say, where do you get that from? I'm so glad you asked. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Take a look at it in your outline. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may, what? Increase? And he uses the strongest negative in Greek. May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Jude also tells us that there will be people who will come into churches and they will actually teach that you can live any way you want. You can say whatever you want. You can sin as much as you want. And it's okay under the grace of God. And Jude says, no. What's he say in Jude 4? For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who long beforehand were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into what? Licentiousness. uh, Sinning any way they want. And denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, a lifestyle of unrepentant sin is a denial of the lordship of Christ and a distortion of the gospel. A lifestyle of unrepentant sin, ongoing sin in your life, is a denial of the lordship of Christ and a distortion of the gospel. So Paul reminds you in verse 13, first in your outline, you are freed not to sin more, but to serve more. You're freed not to sin more, but to serve more. That's what he's saying in verse 13. Take a look at it. You were called to, everyone answer, freedom. Brethren, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, what? Serve one another. Okay? You're freed from the slavery of religion. You're freed from trying to earn God's favor over and over again. In fact, you're freed from the curse of the law, which is death. Someone died in your place. Did he not? He did. Christ died, and he bore that curse for you on the cross. Our Savior died for you, but his death was not to free you so you could sin more. It wasn't. Paul clarifies this freedom that Christ purses for you never turns into, verse 13, look at it now, that phrase, an opportunity for the flesh. His death for you, that freedom that he gives you, was not an opportunity. Now, that word opportunity is really... Write this down. It, it describes literally a central base of military operations. It, it really paints an incredible picture here. A central base of military operations. Your freedom was never intended to turn you loose like a lion through society, chewing up everybody you want, to live sinfully. Your freedom is not to do what you want. Now, look what he says. An opportunity for the what? Flesh. Now, flesh is used four different ways in the New Testament. And here it refers to, and you might want to write this down, sinful inclinations. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Sinful inclinations. Now, get this, little theology. When you're born again, the Bible teaches that your old man, who you were internally, is dead. 
Romans 6, 6, the old man, the old self, the old fallen nature is dead. It's not old man and new man in you, or new man, a new woman, a new old woman in you. It's not this conflict that's going on between the old, you're not schizophrenic, okay? There's not two people in you. The old man has died, and the Bible even tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says that all things become what? New. So you're a new person, but you still have the memory of sin. The inclination of sin. The, a sin, the theologians call it residuum. It's like you stink with sin. It's called your humanness. And one day, you and I are going to be fully redeemed in a glorified body with no more inclination to sin, and that's going to be a great day. Amen? But until then, even though you've been freed from the penalty of sin, and even the power of sin, you still have a memory of sin. You still battle with the presence of sin and the desire for sin called the flesh. And that memory of sin has quite a pull towards evil. It does. In Christ and through His Spirit, you can partially overcome this evil pull. But Paul tells us here, the freedom Christians have is not to become a base of operations where you can freely sin without consequence. Uh, John McCarthy gets really pointed in this quote. He says, under the cloak of Christian liberty... Some professed Christians claim that they're free to get drunk, enjoy worldly amusements, feed their minds with smutty books, magazines, and movies, and live in almost unrestrained self-indulgence. But such a person gives strong evidence that he is not a Christian at all. Although a true believer may fall into serious sin, his renewed conscience and Christ's own indwelling spirit will not allow him to enjoy it for long. And he surely will not continually try to justify sin as a legitimate expression of Christian freedom. The new nature hates sin and loves the righteousness of God. End quote. Verse 13 is reminding you of your fight with sin. We're in a battle. With the enemy, we need to make sure that we battle with the sword of God's word and stand on truth. That's how we battle temptation. With the world... We defeat our love for the world by intensifying our love for the Father because they're in opposition to one another. And with the flesh, most often we flee, but we don't create opportunities for sin. Sometimes we unwisely do. Sometimes foolishly, we Christians create bases of operations in our lives for the sins of the flesh, like allowing ourselves to watch things that lead and result in sin. Maybe excusing our love of an idol of alcohol or drugs or sweets or caffeine or the irresistible combination of Dr. Pepper and nachos, okay? Something from my past. Maybe creating a base of sin by showing more loyalty to sports or to entertainment entertainment than Christ. Or maybe justifying a heart given to leisure with hobbies or amusement parks or food. Maybe you have created a base of operations, a military base of operations from which you launch into sin to satisfy your desires to sin. And Paul says, would you take that seriously here? It's not to be a base of operations, amigo, amiga. We are a multi-language pulpit here. Okay, so... The grace of God forgiving all your sin, past, present, and future, is not a license for you to live sinfully or irresponsibly. Irresponsibly. Your freedom, which was bought by Christ and was His 
purchase a easy purchase or a difficult one? The greatest price ever. And it was given to you by grace, which is a gift to you, through faith. And it's not a freedom to do what you want. Are you ready for this? It's a freedom to do what God wants. He has now freed you for the first time in your life to do what God wants. Now, some of you might be thinking and resisting what I just said because you're thinking, well, that sounds really self-serving. Well, let me help you with that. Remember who we're talking about. Who is the greatest, most perfect, most loving, most sacrificial being in the universe who bought your salvation with his own suffering, death, and resurrection, and whose presence is the greatest joy, the greatest delight, and the greatest gift anyone can experience? Answer to that question is Jesus Christ. Wow. The greatest gift you can experience is Jesus Christ. Salvation is actually knowing Christ. Paul even said that the best in this life is dung compared to knowing Christ. And the freedom that lets you enjoy Christ and do what He wants, which by the way is always best, is true freedom. That's true freedom when we follow what He says. Which is why Paul commands you in verse 13, but through love serve one another. Now Christian freedom allows you to be like Christ. And what was Christ like? He is a servant. A servant. The greatest among you will be the Servant, who serve as a way of life with a heart that wants to serve. Now get this, Christ came to serve, so real freedom is not for pursuing your wants, and certainly not sin. Your freedom is not for selfish fulfillment, but are you ready for this? For serving others. You remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, do you see it there? It says, and he died for all, what's the purpose? So that, right there, purpose, that they who live might no longer live for who? Themselves, but for Him, Christ, who died and rose again on their behalf. What Christ did for you is so compelling, it changes the way you live, so much so you change to live for who you're living for, and you change to live what you're living for. Amazingly, Paul's charge in verse 13 is not for you to run from sin, but to run to Christ. you see it there? He wants you to run to Christ and serve Him. And the command is ongoing here as a command to slave for Christ. And he's shocking the Galatians here. He's saying, look, you're no longer a slave of sin, but now you're the slave of Christ. And they're like, whoa, okay. This is heavy duty. And it's ongoing. It's continual tense, which means, listen, it's not that you're serving just at church. You're serving as a way of life at home, at school, with your friends, with your family, a way of life. And the reason why some of you are battling and losing your war with sin is simply you're not serving Christ as a way of life. That's why He freed you. That's why you're no longer a slave of sin, so you could be the slave of Christ, to serve Him. So you are to flee the sin of the flesh by running towards loving ministry to others because of and for Christ. Are you getting this? That's what he wants you to do. Now, how many of you in the room are committed at least once a week to this body in serving them and somehow? Can I see your hands? Put them way up. Put them way up. Look at that. A lot of people serving here. And yet for the rest of you, maybe it's time for you to start functioning as a body part. Not just as a wart on the body, but, you know, a part. Sorry, that's very unattractive. But there you go. You have been freed by Christ to serve others. 
But he goes beyond that. What's he say? Secondly, in your outline, he says you're freed from the law so you can love. So you can love. Secondly, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, and that word is the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God basically frees you to love others. And that when you love others, you're almost fulfilling the entire Mosaic law. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 22 in the Great Commandment. He says, look, there are two commandments. The first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, and he's repeating what Paul just said here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets, the whole Old Testament. God always calls his people to serve and obey him because they love him. Because they love him. Because he loves us. And this love is not a feeling, but a self-sacrificing denial of yourself for the betterment of somebody else. And Christ loved us, so we love him and we love others. Verse 14, he freed you from the demands and penalty of the law so you could love others and give yourself away. That's why he freed you. Not to wait for the next bus to heaven, but so you could serve. And the very first law after the Ten Commandments is an incredible example of this kind of heart. All right? Are you ready for it? Uh, Basically, after the Ten Commandments, the law stipulated that if one Hebrew bought another Hebrew as a slave, that after six years of slaving, that Hebrew had to let that Hebrew slave free. He had to let him free. But there could be an exception. Exodus 21, right after the Ten Commandments, he says this. If the slave plainly says, this slave who's a Hebrew, I love my master. He's awesome. That's not in the text. I just added that. Um, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Now understand what he's saying here. The purpose of Christian freedom is for believers to do exactly like that Hebrew slave did, who permanently, are you ready? Surrendered his freedom to the master he loved. That's you, and that's me. He willingly gave up his freedom to serve his master. And Paul's saying, you give up your sinful desires, your ways, your wants, to become the slave of God who you love. And as you love, you prove you're freed from the law and enslaved to God himself. Love is the main reason, the main reason that you're freed from the law and Christ made you free. Does it show? Is it obvious? It should be obvious in your service and in your love for others. You've been freed, freed. And then thirdly, he says, and here's the the third exhortation, you're free to serve on the backside of your notes and love or you will eat each other alive. Wow, I could have stated that differently and basically said you're free to serve and love and you're free to be unified, unified together. And that includes marriage, relationships, family, and church. He says in 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Bite and devour, you've seen the YouTubes, right, of the animals attacking each other and eating each other and, uh, you know, kind of going after, and the lions are battling the hyenas and they're going after the kill. Come on, nod with me a little bit. You've seen that somewhere at some point. All right, that's the picture here. That's the picture. It's basically, he's saying, spiritually, that happens when believers don't love and don't serve each other. That's why certain churches implode. They're not loving biblically. They're not serving biblically. 
selfish churches tend to implode. Sharing, serving, giving churches tend to not. In fact, some people come to church to get their own desires met. Instead of a commitment to look at other members as people who can put Christ on display in a unique way that only they can, uh, they begin to see the flaws and the weaknesses and the shortcomings of, of one another. And and so they eat each other alive. They'll harm others, attack others, and be critical of others in a feeding frenzy of spiritually laminated gossip. You've seen it. You've heard it. But look at verse 15. He commands you to take care. What do you mean take care? Open your eyes. That literally means open your eyes. See this correctly. See this correctly. Listen, if you're not laboring in service, if you're not laboring in love towards one another, the alternative is you chew each other apart. That's what he's telling you. Notice twice in the passage he says one another, we're to serve one another, love one another, bear each other's burdens, encourage one another, all that kind of stuff, never to bite and devour each other, ever. And Paul has just explained the ruling principle of the Christian freedom is always love. We are to lovingly accept and serve one another in Christ, otherwise we'll devour each other. Friends, lovelessness is destructive. When we choose not to love, it's actually destructive. Uh, let me help you understand. Some of you go, what is going on here in Galatians that would bring this up? Why would he say this? I'm so glad you asked. You, you ever seen that person who's got to keep the rules? Maybe you're married to one. You know, everything's regimented. You know, they got to stay in the lane. They got to do the speed limit exactly. They, you know, the instructions on the device got to be followed. Perfect. Anybody like, don't, don't admit it. Okay. The legalist Martha, right? Prone to doing all the law prone to agree with the false teachers even though they don't because it's heresy, but they're, oh, they like all that extra stuff. And then in the church, in the Galatian churches, there's also Mary, the libertine. She's waiting for the next bus to heaven. She's not doing anything but rejoicing over the grace of God. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. All right? Well, Mary and Martha are not getting along. Are you tracking with me? The legalist and the libertarian, they're going at it. How do they get along? Are you ready? Write it down. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. They have to depend and obey. In marriage, instead of arguing, fixing your spouse, take some time, back away, get filled with the Spirit, you'll get along. you get along. See, you're not free to cultivate a, a community of, of critics and fault finders. You're, you're freed now by God to communi- cultivate a community of love and service to one another. That's what he's called us to. And how do you pull that off? Look at you got all these commands, right? You just got them. You got love. You got to serve. You got to promote unity together. Paul now tells us how. Are you ready? Write it down. You can't do it. You can't. God can. You can't do it. God can through you. Are you tracking with me? That's what he's saying. And that's point number two. Rely on God's spirit to live free. Rely on God's spirit. How do you do it? Well, you, first in your outline, walk by the Spirit to overcome the flesh. Walk by the Spirit to overcome the flesh. Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Every genuine Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 tells you that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not His child. Very clearly, it's there in the text. So therefore, the Holy Spirit is your personal power to live a life pleasing to God. The Holy Spirit, in order to live free and alive in Christ and not give into your fleshly desires, He commands you to walk by the Spirit, 
to obey this Christian. You are to live in dependence, in obedience, in reliance, in trusting the Spirit of God every moment. This command of walking is actually to walk there is, is ongoing walking. It's continuous actions. It's habitual lifestyle. And he says you can live by the Spirit. He's commanding it so it can. And what he's telling you, I'm commanding you to depend on me. I'm not telling you to do something. I'm telling you to rely on me to work through you. Many of you know Ephesians 5.18. It says, be filled with the what? Spirit. Now, every Christian is indwelt with the Spirit, but not every Christian all the time is filled with the Spirit, including all of you. But to be indwelt is to have all the Spirit. To be filled is that the Spirit has all of you. And so to be filled means to be, and Alex said it last week, to be controlled by the Spirit of God, to be directed, to be led, to be empowered, and that is part and parcel with being saturated in the Word, obedient to the Word, dependently reliant, confessing all known sin, anything that would separate your intimacy with Him, with a desire to please Christ, serving Him, sharing the gospel. Write it down one more time if you haven't already, saying, I can't, but you can in everything. I can't. I can't drive, but you can drive through me, right? I can't maintain this marriage relationship, but you can through me. I can't parent these children, but you can through me. I can't be patient, but you can through Are you tracking with me? He works through us. Now, get this. Being filled with the Spirit is a moment-by-moment dependence where you're humble and you're seeking to say to Him every moment, while you're working the blender, while you're cleaning your house, while you're getting ready for work, you're saying, not my will, but yours be done. Not what I feel, but what you state in your word. And when that moment-by-moment surrendering becomes a habit, where you're filled, you're filled all the way through, you keep getting filled, you confess your sin, you keep getting filled. When that becomes a habit, then you are now walking by the Spirit. Walking is a, a lifestyle. It's a habit. So the filling, on and on and on, creates the walking. And you develop a habit. Listen, some of you are saying, Chris, I cannot love that person. Then why don't you try the divine alternative and let the Spirit love them through you? You don't have to pray for more love. Romans 5.5, His love is shed abroad in our hearts. We just submit to Him and allow Him to love through us. Chris, I can't stop being angry or lacking patience. Then why do you try the dependent, obedient option and let the Spirit and His Word and all those verses on anger and patience work through you? This is the grace of God. This is relying on what God has already given you. Are you tracking with me? Dependence on the Spirit of God through you. And as you develop this habit of walking in the Spirit, you're not going to give in, according to the Bible, to the inclination, the internal and external stink of sin will be less and less showing itself. The memory of that sin nature, the actions of sin, will have less influence in your life because Paul says, as you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Getting it? Never forget, until heaven, though, this struggle will remain with you. Sorry, that's bad news. But until heaven, as a Christian, you will be known more for the Spirit than the flesh. But when you become a Christian, you're immediately in the Spirit, no longer in the flesh. But the flesh, the memory of sin nature, and actions are still with you. So secondly, you need to live aware of the tension between the flesh and the Spirit. Live aware of the tension. Are you in a tension? 
Yes, you are. It's not old man, new man, but you still have that stink that's fighting against the Spirit of God who's indwelling you. And again, walking by the Spirit is never, write this down, a matter of passive surrender. Never. The Spirit-filled life is a life of conflict because it's constant combat with the old ways of the flesh and that continue to tempt and seduce you. So read verse 17. It says, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. Oh yeah. So that you may not do the things that you please. Do you sometimes not do the things you please? Do you find yourself sometimes not doing what you long to do? Anybody? Can I hear an amen? Though you want to affirm that, it's true. The flesh, that term that Paul's using to describe the stink of the old man after you've been saved, you know, refers to your unredeemed humanness, that part of a believer that awaits your future redemption and the time of your glorification. Until then, you have redeemed self living in unredeemed humanness that creates a conflict. And I, I like the way that Galatians 2.20 states that you love this verse too, but it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer who? I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, this body, this you know, fallenness, this humanness, I live by faith, dependence, belief, trust, reliance in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So here in verse 17, he's talking about this flesh conflict, this humanness, this memory that's constantly working against the Spirit. Well, it's different for a Christian than a non-Christian. For a non-Christian, an unsaved person, they regret a lot of times their sinful things that they do. Not all the time, but sometimes they do because of guilt and painful consequences. But they only have a fleshly fallen nature and they're devoid of the Spirit of God. So, though they may be disgusted by their sin, their basic nature is to be God's enemy and a servant of the devil. On the other hand, you and I, who are saved people, have the indwelling Holy Spirit fighting against this fleshly inclination to sin. Only you, Christian, can say with Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, what's he say? I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man. Oh yeah, I agree. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. I think you'll agree. Believers do not always do what they wish to do. Amen? There are moments with every Christian in this room that the wishing is present, the doing is not, and the Spirit often halts what our flesh desires, and the flesh often overrides the will that comes from the Spirit. So it's no surprise that we would say with Paul in Romans chapter 7, and describe this conflicting, frustrating conflict, uh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And he says that in Romans 7, Romans 8 is the Spirit. It's the answer is the Spirit. And although the Christian life is warfare, it's a warfare where victory is always possible, though will not always be lived out. Number three in your outline, the Spirit frees you from external religion. It frees you. In Galatians 5, verse 18 he says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So your choice is here. You either live by the power of the Spirit, which creates Christ-like attitudes and righteousness behavior. And Paul is about to describe the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 to 26. Or, you can live that way, or you can live by the power of the law, the power of self, the power of you trying to do it, 
which can only produce unrighteous behavior, ungodly attitudes, which Paul's about to describe in the very next verses in the deeds of the flesh in verse 19 to 21. Big choice. The good news is, as you're guided and led and filled by the Spirit, you're seeking to walk in the Spirit, you prove you're not under false religion, you're not trying to earn God's favor anymore, you're not trying to save yourself, you're not being independent, because you're depending on the Spirit of God, moment by moment. So you are, verse 18, look what he says, led by the Spirit. Now, wait a minute, he just said walking by the Spirit, now he says led by the Spirit. What's the difference? Well, they're very similar, except led reminds you of who's in charge. It actually has an issue of authority to it. So let me ask you a basic question. Are you sovereign or is God sovereign? Which one? God. So when you're dependent upon the Spirit of God, who's in charge? God is. It's God who's leading you. The Spirit's leading you. And you're following His leading as our sovereign divine guide. You're not directing him, he's what? Directing you by his word to do what pleases him. And therefore, never forget the spirit of truth will never direct you contrary to the truth of God's word. It'll always be according to God's word. And so therefore, when you're dependently led by the spirit, then you're no longer under the law. You're no longer trying to do religion, do works, do deeds, depending on God to save you. You're depending on God to sanctify you. You're depending on God to glorify you. Listen, every moment, this day, today, Sunday, and Monday, when you wake up in the morning and you work all day long, you're dependent upon the spirit of God. Can you work for the glory of God? No, you can't, but he can through you. Are you getting it? It needs to be God through you, moment by moment, filled with the Spirit in everything you do. This is Paul's answer. Don't live by your own strength, the deeds of the flesh. You live by God's, the fruit of the Spirit. God manifesting Himself. So the law is what you do. Being led by the Spirit is what God does. It's the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led, Spirit-directed walk which frees you from religion and places you Firmly in a relationship with the living God that's alive, real, personal, and intimate. You'll watch God work in amazing ways. Listen, would you wake up for a second? Just wake up. You want guidance? You want power in your Christian life? You want to serve to, to the glory of God? You want to love others that are unlovable? You want to overcome the world? You want to overcome the flesh? You want to overcome that sin bent that you're battling with or at least get it under control? It all comes by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. All of it. All of it depend on the Spirit of God. In fact, take this home. Would you, letter A, pursue to walk in the Spirit? Pursue to walk in the Spirit. The power for Christian living is entirely from the Holy Spirit. And, and it's, it's not that you're just sitting on the sidelines. Your will is active in dependence, in reliance. You have to, the Bible says in Romans, consider yourself dead to sin. Refuse to let sin reign in you. Present your members as instruments of righteousness. Don't lose heart in doing good. Do you sometimes serve and not have any emotions about it? Actually, no feelings at all? Would you say amen to that? Sure you will. Hopefully you will. You don't wait for feelings. You serve and you trust Him, right? Independence. 
Listen, the believer is led by the Holy Spirit, has a willingness to go where the Spirit goes, guide him, and do what the Spirit leads him to do. You want him to lead. You don't wait for a feeling. One more time. In our culture, you've got to say this twice. You don't wait for a... Yeah, you just, you, you obey. You serve. You don't wait for an opening or an opportunity. You just obey dependently. And listen, if you're claiming to surrender to the Holy Spirit, but you're not personally involved in God's work, you're not sacrificially of others, you're not faithful in ongoing service, you're not giving what you have, what you're saying to Jesus is, Lord, Lord, but you're not doing what he says. He wants you reliant upon him, and when you're reliant, you're going to manifest those things. With all this talk of freedom, letter B, never give up on the war within. Never give up. What I mean by that is that when you hear about being free in Christ, you might think that, man, the Christian life is one spiritual triumph after another. We're free from sin, so we live by the Spirit. We're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh, and we live with Him, and our fleshly humanness is put, held in check, and we're free to serve or led. We fulfill the law of love. The reality is, would you agree that Christians often suffer bitter spiritual defeats? We still sin. We don't always want to serve. Maybe we fail to fulfill the law of God's love. So how do we rectify that? The apparent contradiction between our freedom and our failings. Well, the answer is verse 17. Take a look at it again. Say in prayer, say to yourself, Fred, Frida, whoever you are, you will never be completely without sin because you still have flesh. You need to have a glorified body to finish this process. Therefore, you'll always be aware of this conflict Paul described when he said the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. But Fred, don't despair. Frida, don't get, get, don't get sad. Heaven's coming. Anybody looking forward to that day? Heaven. And until then, Paul's saying, fight back. Do dependently fight back. D don't don't gratify the desires of your flesh. Stay in the war. Long to hear from your Savior, your friend, your Lord. Well done, good and faithful what? Servant. Make it your main goal each day to live life pleasing to God. And then let her see, evaluate the evidence of the Spirit. Say, what do you mean by that? When you are saved, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit indwells you, He will lead you to the way of freedom, holiness, truth, fruitfulness, uh, access to God in prayer, assurance, witnessing, uh, submissive joy, and to, from today, service to others and love for others. It's going to happen. There's going to be fruit. Do you see obvious fruit of the Spirit in and through your life right now? Not perfectly. Not without struggle. Not a feeling. Not without failure. But if you're His, you will see fruit because if you don't then what does he tell you very simply this is why God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ and died on the cross to be your substitute he suffered all of what you deserve for your sin all of it all of God's wrath was poured out on Christ for his children and he rose from the dead and when you turn from your sin you put your life in his hands and believe what he did on your behalf. He can cover you with his righteousness, make you ready for heaven and ready now. He will transform you internally by giving you a new nature, regenerating you. And he will indwell you with his Holy Spirit who will produce fruit through you.
He will do that. And then you depend on him to accomplish all of that. Are you tracking with me? That's what he does. And you know what? He does it. There's all kinds of people in this room right now. That's exactly what he did. If you knew them before Christ, you'd be going, Ugh. And now that you know them after Christ, sometimes you go, Ugh. But you go, wow, what a change. 